0: Hey Hume, I'm so glad to be with you Uh, one last time before we head down the mountain. As we have been all weekend, uh, we're going to open up to the book of Ecclesiastes. And so if you brought your Bible, please open it to Ecclesiastes chapter 12. We have been joining Solomon on his journey to try to understand the meaning of life. And what we're going to find here as we come to the very end is that Solomon actually figured it out. Solomon didn't come to a frustrating conclusion at the end where he was unable to find an answer. Solomon felt like by the leadership of the spirit and through the wisdom that he had been given, he actually arrived at an answer and he's going to give it to us in extraordinarily plain language. There's a very famous science fiction book called *A Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy. And in this book, there is a question that the characters are asking, and they call it, they're looking for the answer to the ultimate question of life, the universe, and everything. So imagine a question of that kind of scale. They're looking for an answer to the, an answer to the ultimate question of life, the universe, and everything. And technology in this science fiction world is so well developed that there is a machine called deep thought that can ponder and uh, explore questions like this, and so they put all of the information that they have in the universe into this machine, and it spends thousands and thousands and thousands and thousands of years calculating, and then finally it arrives with an answer to the ultimate question of life and the meaning of everything, and it spits out a little piece of paper, and on it, it says 42. 42 is the answer to the question. Now, if that sounds ridiculous to you, it should. That's that's the whole point. It's satire. The the author is trying to convey to his audience the the fact that there is no answer to that question. In fact, you're probably not even asking the right question because what you will inevitably end up with is a reductionist, simplistic answer. And it's kind of a, it's a bit of a cynical uh, and skeptical worldview. That there really is no answer to the ultimate question of the purpose and meaning of this life. That's kind of the thesis of that little section of the book. There is no answer. In fact, it's probably not even the right question. And I don't know about you, but I am very thankful that the Bible disagrees. (laughs) Like, how hopeless to think there is no answer to the most important question we could ever ask. The good news that we're going to find at the end of Ecclesiastes today is that there is an answer to the question and that it is simple and it is understandable and, praise God, it is accessible. It is applicable for us. We can understand it, we can know it, and we can actually live in it. So as Solomon has moved through this search... And he's reflected on how meaningless and vain and fleeting life feels under the sun, and he's pursued intellectualism and information, and he's pursued uh, building projects and glory and fame and pleasure, and he found purpose in none of it. He, here at the very end, is going to he's going to show us the answer to the question that he arrived at. and it's just in one verse, at the end of Ecclesiastes chapter 12. It's in verse 13. And he couldn't tell us any more clearly that this is the point. He says, The end of the matter. All has been heard. So, he says, Look, this is my conclusion. This is the end of this massive exploration that I have been on to understand the purpose and meaning of life. And he says... All has been heard, which is Solomon's way of saying, I have exhausted every earthly option to find the answer. All has been heard, all has been explored, all has been considered, and here is the answer fear God and keep his commandments, for this is the whole duty of man. Fear God. And keep his commandments, for this is the whole duty of man. I love watching movies that have a massive plot twist at the end of them. Anybody else? And one of the reasons I love watching movies like that is because it rewards and even demands multiple rewatchings. Because the first time you watch the movie, you're you're a little bit oblivious to what's going on, and you're trying to track, and you're trying to follow, but then you get to the end, and you get such a key piece of information that it changes the way you see the entire rest of the movie. Have you ever finished a movie and immediately thought, I just want to rewind that and start again, because now I know what was going on the whole time? That is exactly what's happening at the end of Ecclesiastes, and so I want to just... If all you walk away with from this weekend is this. If you ever get to the book of Ecclesiastes again and you find yourself totally confused, you read the opening lines and it says, vanity, vanity, all is vanity, life is meaningless, what is this all about? And you feel confused or discouraged. Just know that if you go to the end, you will get the piece of information that unlocks the key of understanding to the entire thing. Solomon says it's this, the whole point of it all, life not under the sun that is futile and frustrating and disappointing and meaningless, But life above the sun with our creator, the way that we were intended and designed to live is this, that we fear God and obey his commandments. We fear God and we obey his commands. Now what I want to spend some time doing with you here is this. I want to unpack what each of those two phrases means and how it applies to our lives Because as we go home, it is not enough for us to intellectually know the answer to the question. We have to practically live the answer to the question. It's not enough just to know the meaning of life, you have to actually live in a way that is in harmony with the meaning of life. And that's my hope and my prayer for you as we get ready to go home, is that you would be armed, that you would be equipped, not only with the information that you need, but with a heart that is transformed with desire to do what God is asking you to do here. And so we'll ask and answer this question, how do I live out my purpose? How do I live out my purpose? And if you're like me, man, I desperately want an answer to that question. I want to know what the meaning of life is, but even beyond that, I want to know how I can live it out. I want to know how I can do it. And I'm so thankful that the Bible gives us such clear instruction here in this one verse that ties together the entire book of Ecclesiastes. And the answers are not going to be clever. They're just going to be very simple. And we just read them right there in the text. How do I live out my purpose? Well, first, I fear God. I fear God. That's what verse 13 says, the end of the matter, all has been heard, fear God. Now when we hear that phrase, oftentimes it kind of, it, it, it rubs us the wrong way a little bit. It, it makes us feel a little bit uncomfortable, like what do you mean? I'm supposed to, I'm supposed to fear God, because I think automatically in our In the English language, for sure, the word fear carries a connotation with it that this text does not intend, nor does the Bible intend when it talks to you about fearing God or the fear of the Lord. Because we automatically think, we associate it with being afraid of, right? So we imagine like, well, Solomon is telling me that the entire point and purpose of my life is to be afraid of God? No, wrong. We, we actually have to get that idea out of our minds if we're ever going to truly understand and apply what it actually means to fear God. To fear God is not to be afraid of God, right? You can imagine what it's like to be afraid of someone or afraid of something. You are anticipating a negative outcome or you're anticipating the pain or the hurt that that thing is going to inflict on you. So imagine like a dog that's been abused by its owner. Every time that owner moves, the dog is like skittish and and running and hiding and yelping. Why? Because it's afraid that something bad is going to happen to it. And that is absolutely not how we are supposed to feel or interact with God. That's that's not what's meant by fear God. Fearing God, in fact, doesn't draw us away from him to run in terror. Fearing God actually draws us toward him in awe. And this is, if you're looking for a definition, if you're taking notes, here's what it means to fear God. It's this, when the awesomeness of God produces joyful reverence in the people of God. When the awesomeness of God produces joyful reverence in the people of God. Just a few months ago, I came up here for a young adults retreat. And with uh, my wife Rachel and a couple of friends, late one night, we drove up the road a little bit. You know, when you're driving into Hume Lake and on the left hand side, you can see just that incredible view of Kings Canyon and it's just glorious. We drove up there, and there's a little pull off to the side where you can go out there and you can look at the stars. And so we went out there, and for probably a straight hour, we just stood on the edge of the cliff in the pitch black darkness underneath an infinite sea of stars. And I've I've traveled some places, but I got to say, there are very few places in the world that I have ever seen stars like I have seen them here. And I stood on the edge of that canyon with the glory of the landscape in front of me and, and the, the vast sea of space out uh, above me. And I remember having this feeling of like, whoa, whoa. Have you ever felt that? Have you ever seen something so stunning that you feel, you feel happily small? You feel you feel joyfully insignificant because you are laid low by the wonder and the sheer magnitude of what is in front of you. Feeling that with nature is but a shadow of the way that we should feel it in light of the one who made nature. And this is what, this is what fearing God is. Fearing God is when the awesomeness of God produces joyful reverence in the people of God. That when we come into contact with God and we learn who he is and we get a glimpse of his majesty and his grandeur, it actually lays us low and it fills us with awe. That's what fearing God is, is that, set, that internal sense of, whoa, what is this? How beautiful, how big, how grand, how powerful. That is the fear of God. This is what we see in God's word. Is the, this is the way that people respond when they come into contact with all that God is. It's the only rational response to his awesomeness. It is reverence that we would honor him, that we would be captivated and compelled by him. So when we get a glimpse of how holy God is, how utterly pure and perfect and other than us he is, when we see how holy God is, we should be like Isaiah in Isaiah 6 who says, "'Woe is me, I am undone. "'I am a man of unclean lips.'" What is that that's the fear of God when we get a glimpse of the power of God to save and to heal and to forgive and to transform and his miracle working creation sustaining power we should be like Peter in the boat when he saw Jesus and he fell down at his feet and he said even the wind and the waves obey this who is this what is that that's the fear of the Lord we should be like the Apostle John when he saw the majesty of God, when he was translated into the throne room of heaven and given a vision of God's glory. It says, I fell down as though dead. What is that? That's the fear of the Lord. But it is not a fear that drives us away or repels us in terror, it is a fear that draws us in in wonder. So I would just say this to you, if, you have, if you've read about God, and you've heard about God, and you've thought about God, and you've been in church that has talked about God, and you've come to Hume Lake where they've preached about God, and you have perpetually found yourself bored by it, you have never seen him at all. I promise. Because when you really get a glimpse of him, when you see him for who he is, you cannot help but be filled with awe and reverence. If you're bored by him, you simply have not seen him. Your eyes are blinded by your sin. And when the Spirit gives you the gift of removing those scales and you get a glimpse of the awesomeness and the glory of God... You will be filled with a healthy and joyful sense of fear. It's a reverence. It's a respect that drives our relationship with him and fuels our worship of him. The reason we worship God, the reason we adore God, the reason we exalt God is because we are filled with awe and wonder about who he is. Here's a, here's a surprising thought for you. If you, ever, if you ever have trouble thinking about the fear of God and thinking, man, I, just, I don't want to just be afraid of God, right? We, here's, a, here's a surprising thought. God's people don't fear him because he is evil and dangerous, right? That would be being afraid of him. God's people fear him because he is good and generous. And as I was studying for this message, I found this verse in Jeremiah 33, It says this, this is kind of surprising. It turns your categories upside down a little bit. It says, and this city shall be to me a name of joy. So this is the prophet Jeremiah, and he's talking about the fact that the city of Jerusalem is going to fall into the hands of God's enemies under his judgment, but there is a coming day when he will restore the fortunes of Jerusalem, and he will bring his people back, and he will bless them once again in his promised place. And here's what he says, This city shall be to me a name of joy, a praise, and a glory before all nations of the earth, who shall hear of the good that I shall do for them. And then what will be the response of God's people when God protects them and brings them back and restores them and blesses them and heals them? What will be the response of the people? They shall fear and tremble. Why? Because I hurt them? Because I was evil to them? Because I did wrong to them? Is that why they will fear me? No. They shall fear and tremble because of all of the good and all the prosperity that I will provide for this city. <laughs> I don't know if you ever think about the fear of God like that, but you should. I fear God because of all of the good that he has done for a sinner like me. He has, he's bridged the chasm, the infinite eternal gap that existed between a holy God and sinful me, and he's done it through his son Jesus Christ and his finished work on the cross and in the empty tomb, and so I bow before him and I fear him. Now you might be asking at this point, like, I think I get the concept, Nick. You've explained it and I understand it. But how do I do it? How do I do it? Well, the reality is that the only way we can fear God is when we know God. The only way you can relate to God with reverence and awe is by knowing him. You, You cannot... You cannot revere that which you do not know. And so I would just encourage you that every moment you spend in this life getting to know more of who God is, every moment that you spend opening his word and studying it for yourself, every moment you spend in prayer, every moment you spend in the fellowship of other believers who are talking about the truth of God, every moment you spend in worship and listening to good worship music and singing it whether alone or with other believers, every moment that you spend learning more of who God is, you are giving yourself kindling around the fire of your fear of God. And you need the Spirit of God to bring the spark and to light the flame, but you can do your work of gathering the kindling and gathering the log so that when the Spirit lights that on fire, there is something to set ablaze. You cannot fear that which you do not know, and so get to know God and spend time learning more about who he is so that you can grow in your awe and your love and your reverence for him. This is our purpose, and it's how we live it out. We fear God, and then second, we obey his commands. We obey his commands. Chapter 12, verse 13 says, The end of the matter all has been heard. Fear God and keep his commandments. Keep his commandments. Submission to the authority of Jesus is an absolutely necessary element of being a Christian. I think one of the disservices that we have done ourselves is we have somehow bought the lie that Christianity and obedience are somehow two separate things. Like, I can be a Christian, I can belong to God, I can be saved because of a prayer that I prayed or a decision that I made or a relationship that I have with my parents or my pastors. I can be a Christian, but obedience is another thing. I can be a Christian, but I may or may not obey. And we have done ourselves a huge disservice by separating those two things. And what we need to understand, both from this passage and from many others in the Word of God, is that submission to the authority of Jesus and obedience to the commands of God is not an add-on to Christianity. It is not, uh, it's not an option in Christianity. It is absolutely necessary to our Christianity. In fact, I would argue with you that it's not that obedience makes you a Christian, right? We know this because what the Bible clearly reveals is that we are not saved by our obedience. We are saved by grace through faith alone. And what that means is our salvation is a gift of God. There's nothing we could ever do to earn it. And yet there there is obedience that we must give in response to it. We must. Obedience doesn't make you a Christian, But you can also say this sentence. Without obedience, you are not a Christian. Are you tracking with me there? Obedience doesn't make you a Christian. But without obedience, you are not a Christian. And I know that might be hard to hear, but that is what the word of God so clearly reveals. You go to a place like James chapter 2 and it says, faith without works is dead. If you say, I have put my faith in Jesus, but I have no interest in obeying him, and I am not going to do what he says, I'm going to do what I say, you are revealing the fact that you have never truly put your faith in Jesus at all. Because to put your faith in him is to choose to obey him. There is perfect overlap between those two things. It would be as if, have you ever met somebody who claimed a title, but their behavior absolutely and utterly contradicted that title? You ever met somebody who says, oh, yeah, I'm a vegan. You're like, what's your favorite food? Bacon. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> You'd be like, that is, that is incoherent. That doesn't, make, that doesn't make any sense. I mean, being a vegan doesn't make any sense anyways, because bacon is God's gift to mankind, right? Okay. Oh, man. Vegans, I'm sorry. They don't hate you. I don't hate you. We love you. <laughs> just imagine for a moment. Just imagine for a moment you said, I, I'm a vegan, b- but I eat bacon every morning at breakfast. You, you'd be like, bro, you're n- I don't know what you think that word means. You're not a vegan. It'd be like saying, yeah, I am a, I am a fully committed minimalist. You should check out my episode of Hoarders, right? It's, it's incoherent. It's, it's an identity claim that is not in any way backed up by your behavior. In fact, your behavior invalidates the claim about the identity. You're like, you know what? I have decided I am going to create a TikTok series about how I quit social media forever. You, you've, seen, you've seen those posts where people are like, people do a long, elaborate post and they're like, I'm quitting social media. I'll never be back. It's like, bro, just shut the app off. You don't have to tell us on the app that you are quitting right? There's so many ways where our behavior invalidates the claim that we make. And I know we're being funny about it, but if you can zoom in here for a moment, if you call yourself a Christian, but you have no interest in doing what Jesus commands you to do, because I love you, I would plead with you to reevaluate the claim that you are making. If you say that you're a Christian, but there are very obvious areas in your life where you know what God has told you to do, and on a daily basis, you turn your back on that intentionally and say, God, I don't care what you say. I am doing what I want to do. The Bible has very severe and very stern warnings for that, and rightfully so. So here's what, here's what I'm not saying. I am not saying that you have to be perfect to be a Christian. That is not what I'm saying. I'm not saying you have to have a flawless track record of obedience to be worthy of the love of God. Here's what I'm saying. If you know the transforming love of God, if you have received his grace and forgiveness through the cross, and you have had your debt wiped away, and you've been granted the gift of eternal life through the resurrecting power of Jesus, then it will be your desire to obey him. And you won't do it perfectly, you won't do it perpetually, but you will do it progressively. You will grow in your obedience over time. And when the Spirit of God and the people of God bring to your attention areas of your life and behaviors that are outside of the will of God, you will repent from those things. You will turn away from them. And with all of the strength that the Spirit supplies, you will pursue obedience. Because this is what God's people do. They fear God. They are filled with awe and reverence of God, and that awe and reverence drives them to obey, to do what God has commanded them to do. And so I would challenge you to think. Think about the areas of your life. Think about the relationships that you're building, the words that you're saying, the priorities that you're pursuing, the money that you're spending, the sexuality that you're expressing, the thoughts that you're thinking, the websites that you're visiting, the goals that you're pursuing, the shows that you're watching. Think about every area of your life and ask yourself, am I doing what God has commanded me to do in this area? And if the answer is no, that, is, that, that sin is covered by the blood of the cross And you have, if in fact you are a follower of Jesus, you have spiritual power to turn away from that and to choose to walk in obedience. This is what the word of God says. Jesus in John 14 said it this simply, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. Like, I don't know how much more clear and simple Jesus could possibly be. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. True obedience is not the begrudging submission of an angry person to an arbitrary set of rules. Like, well, you know, God's in charge, so I guess I have to do what he says. True obedience is the overflow of a heart of gratitude for what God has done for us. When we recognize the generosity and the kindness and the saving grace of God, we want to obey him. We want to obey him. Why? Because we trust his wisdom and we know his generosity and we've experienced his love. And we know that life with him is infinitely more fulfilling and joyful and happy and healthy and stable and peaceful than life pursuing my own sinful, selfish desires. And so because I love him, I will obey his commands. And then this, I want to read this from Matthew 28. This is, we call this the Great Commission. Jesus, at the very end of his life, after he was raised from the dead, but before he ascended to heaven, he met some of his disciples on a Galilean hillside, and he gave them this charge. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, ...and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Obeying commands, knowing what God has said and then doing it is not just what we do as disciples... If we are disciples who do what Jesus says and we're disciples who make other disciples, this is actually an integral part of what we're supposed to transfer in discipleship. We're not just supposed to do it ourselves, though we are. We're actually supposed to help other people do it that we should go into the world as those who know the saving grace of God and who have become disciples of Jesus, and we are to make other disciples of all nations, and we are to baptize them in the name of the triune God, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and then we are to teach them to observe all that Christ has commanded. This is, this is so tied up in the mission that, ca- that Christ has left us that we would ourselves be disciples who obey, and then we would train others around us to obey. And we would do it knowing that the presence of God will never leave us. Behold, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. I don't don't know about you, but this is such a compelling, I think this is such a compelling vision for life, that I would live in joyful reverence of the God who made me, that I would be filled with wonder and awe, that I would be compelled to worship him, and that worship would then lead me to obey him. So if you're sitting here and you're wondering, what, it, what does this actually look like? Like when I go home today, when we go down the hill and I'm back to my life and my school and my team and my clubs and my family and my neighborhood and my job, what, what does this actually look like? Well, there's, there's really just two elements to it. If you want to obey his commands, first, you have to know what they are. Once again, just like you cannot fear that which you do not know, you cannot obey that which you do not know. So you need to know what God has commanded you to do. You can learn that in his word. You can learn that at your faithful Bible teaching churches. Know what God has commanded you. And then as simple as it sounds, do what God commands you. Do what God commands you. We should, in humility, approach the commands of God with the realization that there are always going to be areas and ways and places in our lives that we fall short of what God has commanded us. That ought not to be a perpetual discouragement. It ought to actually be a joyful journey towards growing into all that God has called us to be and empowered us to be by his Holy Spirit. We fear God And we obey his commands. I want to finish here because you might be thinking, well, Nick, man, I'm just a high schooler. And all of this sounds very, it it sounds true. It sounds kind of compelling. But, man, I remember when I was your age, I, I sat in settings like this one. And I heard people like me say things like this. And when I was in high school, the conclusion I reached was, you know what, Nick? I actually think what you're saying is true. I actually believe that God is real. I believe that the Bible is true. I believe that Jesus died for my sin. I believe that the purpose of my life is to fear God and to know him and to obey him. I actually believe that what you're saying is true. I just don't want to do it right now. That was the conclusion. If I was sitting in your seat and I was in high school and I had an honest conversation, that's what I would have said. I would have said to you, you know, I I think that's real, but I'm not going to do it until later in my life. Right now, I'm just in high school and I've got stuff to do and I've got fun to have and I've got things I want to explore and things I want to do and maybe once that's over and then I'm old and boring, then I will actually do what I know is right. Then I'll be a Christian. Then I'll repent from my sin. Then I will obey God. And if you're in that place right now, I want to finish by showing you a place in Psalm 90. It's verse 12, and it says this So teach us to number our days that we may get a heart of wisdom. Teach us to number our days. What this is saying is it's a, it's a prayer to God asking for his help to remember and be aware of our own mortality. To remember that we are not promised another day. Teach us to number our days that we may get a heart of wisdom. The heart of this prayer is this, that the one who is truly wise And I hope today that you want to be wise. The one who is truly wise does not delay to tomorrow what God has called them to do today. And why is that? Because we have numbered days and we don't know how many. Teach us, God, to number our days. Remind us. Help us to understand that we are limited. We are not promised another day. And every moment that we live on this earth and every decision that we make and everything that we do, it matters. It matters what we do and who we are and how we live in this life will not just matter for this life. It will matter forever. Think about that for just a moment. The way you live in the here and now affects forever. It actually changes the landscape of eternity, which means that all of your decisions, all of your choices, all of your habits, all of your relationships, they all have eternal significance. And so I would plead with you to consider them and to to make the choice by the power and leadership of the Spirit not to waste your life on frivolous, meaningless, sinful, selfish things, but rather to give yourself to that which matters forever. To joyfully embrace your created purpose to fear your God and obey His commands. And you will experience the blessing and the peace and the joy and the stability of knowing that you are living to do what you were created to do. There there is no joy like that, I'm telling you. There is no freedom like that. There is no blessing like that than knowing that you are walking in the will of the God who made you and you are living out the purpose for which he created you. And I hope and pray that as we come to the end of this weekend, as we come to the end of this study in the book of Ecclesiastes, that you would joyfully embrace that great purpose that he has for you, that you would fill the eternity-sized hole that is in your heart with eternal relationship with your God and your King and your Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. Let's pray together. Father, thank you. Thank you for this incredible reminder this weekend that in the middle of a fallen and broken and confusing world, there is purpose and there is meaning because there is an eternal creator God who sees us and knows us and loves us and actually communicates with us. So God, would you just cut through all of the confusion and all the fog and all the chaos and would you help us to know clearly and simply, who you are and what you're asking of us. And then, Holy Spirit, would you transform our hearts so that we desire to fear and obey you? As we go down the hill, God, I pray that you'd give us the courage to change some things about our lives, to change some relationships, to change some habits, to change some choices and some patterns, not so that we can earn your love, but because we have already been transformed by it. God, would you help us to be filled with a joyful awe and reverence of you? Would you reveal yourself to us, and then would you compel us towards obedience in a way that honors and glorifies you? God, we magnify you for your grace. We thank you for your love, and we trust you for your provision as we go forth from this place, and we pray it all in Jesus' name. Amen.